0: These, some people
1: own Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money the sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W. from the Playing Footsie Show. and I've got Paul and Steve D. from the Playing Footsie Show. It's been a good week in the stock market this week. The FTSE 100 is up. The S&P 500 is up. but We're not talking about any of those things because we've got some really, really important news from the UK fintech space. We've got news from Revolut. We've got news from Free Trade and news from Trading 212 that we think UK investors are going to want to know about. That's all coming up later on on the show. But first of all,
2: Steve, Paul, how are you? How have your weeks been? I've been lovely. I'm very tired. Um, I'll tell you what, though. Uh, the, I keep seeing news on CNBC. Uh, S&P 500 up brilliantly this week. Uh, failed a bit on Friday. But my portfolio has had a kicking this week. So mm. I've kind of gone the opposite direction of what the news headlines have been saying. I can't really find... Why at the moment? I haven't delved too deeply yet, but that's that's been my experience. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's the uh, you know the top top five stocks that have that have come off the top, and the rest have all pushed up a little bit. I, I don't know. But yeah, a disappointing weekend stocks for me.
0: Yeah, same for me. I've had a problems coming threes kind of week. I've had that group have put um, a number of their staff on a shortened week because they they're not seeing this demand that Nvidia are. Um, I, I've had. Uh, n have done a follow-on offering. That's that's knocked about 10% off, um, off their, their share price. And then Alexandria as well. This was, there was a short seller on CNBC. Um, he was um, he said he's got a large short position against Alexandria, which is funny because if you look at his 13F, he actually had a long position at last disclosure. Uh, mm. But he's flipped now because, listen to this, for anecdotal evidence of all the anecdotal evidence. He thinks that Alexandria's uh, occupancy is going to drop to 50%. And he thinks this because he's been tracking the cell phone data and it has dropped.
2: <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, um, I gave up. I gave up on that. So that uh, was my bad week. I just kept happening. Every day you'd log on, you're like, oh, cool. Like, like 1%, 2%. Like, oh, something's down 10.
2: Yeah. And that's kind of, yeah, happening what's happened like that to me. Uh, Alexandria, I thought you were going to go somewhere like, I don't know, it's a lot of VC companies and VC is going to. Going to suffer quite badly in a in a recessionary environment if we're in a recessionary environment. It's, that's arguable these days, isn't it? Um, but the fact that people aren't calling them as much is that what that's what we're we're going by. I think.
0: I, I'm not entirely sure what he's been doing. I've, in my head, I've got him, like, stood outside with one of those, like, you know, those, like, FBI things you see in the movies, where he's tracking all the cell phones, going, <laughs> yeah. oh, there's only 20 phones in that building, there used to be 40. Yeah, it, but will find that they're all I,
2: Wi-Fi calling now.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're all on, they're all Zoom calling, but yeah. no, it's just one of the strangest things. It's like, it's like Alexandria is a, is a lab re, it's labs and lab offices, do you know what I mean? You, you can't take the vials home, you can't do, you know what I mean? no. you can't do science experiments from your, from your your, you know your back garden and ring it through that's that's just not how it works so it's such a strange argument and the vc argument's a strange one too because got only about 0.8 percent of their um of of their um occupancy is by sort of vc backed uh no profit kind of startup so they're just not exposed to it it's just a strange argument and he, he did he sort of you know when you watch somebody on tv and straight away you think This guy's just trying to manipulate me. He's just trying to manipulate me into thinking the way that he is. I looked at the share price and thought, well, there are some very stupid people out there and this seems to have worked.
1: Well, three for three, watching the indexes go up. I am also down on my portfolio this week. Uh, And it's, in my case, a bit hard to sort of see why, but I think there is one big thing driving it down, which hasn't been mentioned by either of you guys yet. I don't think I own any of the things that Steve just mentioned. But I do own Fortaro, which Steve also owns, mm. and that went ex-dividend on Thursday for a dividend payment that is around 5% of the current share price. So anyone who owned it and bought it so Wednesday is about to get 5% of their uh, investment back in the form of a dividend. Uh, but they just lost 5% roughly of their share price on Thursday and because uh, they uh, the stock is just worth 5% less if it's not going to pay you that 5% thing in short order. It also got whacked on Friday again as it's been hit by kind of news about mortgage rates going up. For is a brick company, that's got to be weighing on building uh, and it lost another sort of 3% or so on that. So I've gone from being about 5-6% green on that particular stock to being about 3% uh, red on, <clears throat> on the same one. Uh, apart from that, I'm not sure I've seen anything particularly significant from my portfolio, but I'm... Over the last week, I am losing to a combination of the S&P and the FTSE. Both are up. I am not. Uh, So welcome to the playing, underperforming the FTSE uh, podcast, I guess. Um, Okay, so an interesting week for all three of us. Uh, Paul's week continues to get interesting. He has just been hauled away on what is some pretty urgent business. But Steve and I are still here, so thanks for being with us. I promise you the exciting stuff about Pintex is coming. But first of all, uh, we've got some less exciting news about a company called Vodafone. Vodafone is never an exciting company in my view, but it does continue, I suppose, my personal uh bid uh what turns out to be look at the worst performing FTSE 100 stocks of the last year or so. And in the case of Vodafone, I might as well have picked the last sort of 20 odd years. I think it's one of the worst uh, that's not been turfed out of the index entirely. It's right down there with stuff like Ocado in terms of performance. But there was good news for Vodafone shareholders this week. there's been a talk of agreement now of a merger between themselves and three, one of the UK's other large telecoms providers that would make the combined unit the largest provider in the UK. Vodafone shares reacted to this by bouncing off their 25 year low uh, by about 3% or so, meaning that someone who bought shares five years ago would only be down around 60% in terms of the market value of their investment. So, Obviously, this was something I had to think about quite a lot. And there are, I suppose, three questions for either Vodafone shareholders um, or people considering becoming Vodafone shareholders. Uh, I'll try and stop saying that because I'm struggling with it. Uh, To keep in mind, question one, will the merger happen? Two, should um, investors want it to happen? And three, does it make the stock a buy? I suppose are the the kind of main questions that I'm looking at here. So a bit of background for the moment then. Uh, Vodafone is, to use a technical term, a shitty business in a shitty sector. It's in telecoms, which is always, always cash hungry. It's got a new CEO uh, who is basically a veteran of that company from before, from what I understand of it. So it's unlikely they're going to go in a different direction. And it seems to compete in markets that are a bit like airlines, to be honest. So both have massive fixed costs, which is you buy in infrastructure, whether that's airlines or uh, telecoms equipment. And effectively, what you try and do is then try and sell it to a bunch of customers. And of course, since you've already paid for this stuff, the more customers you add on, the bigger your margin becomes. So massively operationally leveraged. And that's true whether it's an airline or one of these things. And the problems airlines have is everyone knows this. So everybody is busy trying to sell their last seats on this plane as cheaply as they possibly can. And the same is true with the telcos. They're all busy, especially in the markets Vodafone operates in, which is sort of Germany, Italy, UK, and I think like South Africa uh, or something like that. Especially in Italy, there appears to be a mad race to the bottom in terms of pricing that doesn't seem to have a flaw um, and seems to be like almost constantly competing against someone like Amazon, who has a kind of big advantage over you. So... Pretty much no one uh, in this space, as far as I can tell, seems to make any decent returns on their investment, but that includes Vodafone. They've got some problems that are of their own making too, but the biggest thing I struggle to get on board with as an investor is the industry and the way this industry seems to operate. So the products are also fairly commoditized, which means it's hard to push inflation prices through because customers will just switch. It's quite easy to switch now. You take your number with you uh, and away you go to your new provider. So, how do you get an edge in a commodity-like business with massive capital-intensive costs? Uh, hard, but one answer is you try and be bigger than everybody else, and you try and get an advantage by having a greater scale. Vodafone doesn't have that, 3 doesn't have that. In the UK, they are the third and fourth largest uh, telecoms providers, but if they merge their operations, they might start making some progress. So that's, I guess, the rationale for wanting it to happen, uh, at least as far as I can tell. So, Will it? There's a deal agreed between um, C.K. Hutchinson, who is the owner of three, who, as I understand it, wants rid of that operation and Vodafone to merge the UK part of their operation. So big tick in that particular box. Then there's a question of whether it will be approved by regulators and regulators have to think about two things, or at least in theory, regulators are supposed to think about two things. Number one is what it will do to market forces and prices to customers. Uh, by consolidating down what is only a sort of four-big-player industry into what would be a three-big-player industry, with one of those being uh, bigger than the others still, is unlikely to help pricing on the face of it. I mean, Vodafone needs it to not help uh, customer pricing here. They need to find a way of charging people more. But the other thing that the regulator needs to consider is, look, these are cash-hungry things. These need investment. Uh, and someone got to make those damn investments. And someone got to be incentivized enough to think, yeah, if I make that investment, I can earn a decent enough return on it. So for comparison, you might think of utilities businesses. They're regulated, especially the ones in the States. And the reason they're regulated is twofold. One is because you can't just charge customers whatever you want for electricity that they can't actually live without. And the other is, look, you have to put up quite a lot of money as a utilities company, and you're not going to do it unless you think there's a decent return in it for you and your regulator is going to agree to beat out all of your competitors for you. So maybe, but the regulator in the UK on the telco side has been historically reluctant to let this kind of thing happen. So there's a big, big question mark as to whether this is any news at all. But see what you think if you're interested in Vodafone shares. Should shareholders want it? Um, I think they should. I think this is the best way or the only way I can see for Vodafone to get any kind of meaningful scale advantage here, which is what it would need for them to start earning a decent return on their investments. It does ruin a thesis with Vodafone shares at the moment. I say ruin a thesis. I don't think it wasn't ruined in the first place, but it does extra ruin a thesis with Vodafone shares that is effectively an idea of, look, if you buy it today, then one of two things will happen. Either you sit there collecting a 10% dividend to infinity, which is a pretty good return if you can do that, uh, because that's where the share price has currently fallen to, or you pay attention to the fact that um, there's a lot of interest in Vodafone's shares from a number of industry professionals. So there's big uh, um, Eastern Telcos interested in this, it's Liberty Global, I think, or Liberty Media, sorry, in the states. Both of these organisations own big stakes in Vodafone. Could they be interested in taking them over? Maybe they say they're not, um, but they uh, and there are other reasons they could want to own those shares, even if it's not a matter of uh, a takeover. But there's a thought that says, look, if you buy uh, Vodafone shares, one of two things happens: either you get bought out at a bigger price when someone takes them over, or you just sit there claiming your 10% dividend. Win-win. This, I think, is bad news for that. This, I think, means it's less likely they'll be taken over if they're made even bigger and attached to uh, another company. I didn't think that was a very good thesis anyway because I didn't think the 10% dividend thing held up because I think that dividend is in real danger. They've said it's not getting cut before and then cut it. I think it's going to go again because um, I don't see how they can keep paying that dividend based on their current cash flows. So is the stock a buy? I don't know. I don't think so. There's way too much uncertainty as far as I can tell. I don't know the answer to pretty much any question uh, that I've uh, raised so far. All I can do is sketch why they're important and why shareholders and investors should be interested in them. You need a lot more confidence than I have to try and buy this stock, Steve. What do you think?
0: Well, I, I, I don't have any confidence in, in this stock or or any feel any need to buy it, really. O- over the last 20 years, this stock is still down about 45 to 50%. Uh, That's not a great return that Steve. It doesn't matter if they're paying you a 10% dividend. You don't want that Um, It's uh, it's it's not a particularly attractive return and and all of that time uh, Up until the last year, they've just been adding to this massive mountain of debt Uh, The debt is now about a year's revenue for them. So it's about 40 odd billion. It's about what they do in revenue. So that's uh, That's quite a lot of long-term debt Uh, And I saw investors cheering this when it went through and I just couldn't get my head around it I mean part of the part of the deal part of the announcement hidden in there is The obvious ploy that they're telling the regulator that hey look if you let this go through We're gonna spend 11 billion on infrastructure. Well uh, 11 billion is more than both of those companies combined profits. So uh, that's got to come from somewhere Steve That cash piles at about 7 billion at the moment with about 7 billion in uh, in short-term stuff Uh, I don't know Steve, some of that's going to be evidently dividended out soon, a couple of billion that's going to get dividended out soon, I wouldn't imagine Vodafone are going to want to leave themselves with just a billion in in working capital, so I think we might see more debt get onto this balance sheet quicker than we thought, uh, which is uh, not something I'm particularly excited about. Um, I did see a friend of the show, Boss Hogg. He's done a pretty decent rundown of Vodafone. He's in this industry. And um, uh, he basically went through this turnaround plan uh, from somebody who knows what he's talking about. And so sort I've of had a massive sho- shoulder shrug on it. He was like, there's there's nothing in here that's of real substance. It's all kind of like buzzwords from the industry that don't really mean anything. And that's what happens when you promote from inside. Uh, it tends to be that uh, the, the, the boat that needs to get rocked gets sort of mildly shaken. And um, I think that's kind of what we're uh, kind of what we're going to see with uh, with Vodafone here. And I, I can see that there's going to be people here who are going to think this is a well, it's a it's a low, isn't it? It's not been this low since probably late '90s. Therefore, there must be some kind of value here. And I'm in the opposite opinion here. I just think this has been a big uh, wildly beast. Um, that I don't think will turn around and I think is an acquisition target for somebody who feels like they could you know come and asset strip this thing down and just run it as a you know a maybe a low cost um, phone operation I actually think that's probably the best way to run it what do you think I want to
1: go all Buffett here for the moment, but in one of his kind of old shareholder letters, he distinguishes three businesses. He calls the great business, the good business and the gruesome business. And the great business is one that grows and you don't have to reinvest anything to make it grow. It just grows by itself. Right. So the the cash it generates, you can then go and use to, well, whatever, pay yourself a dividend, buy other businesses, uh, pay down your debt, whatever you have. Um, the good business is one where you have to invest quite a lot of money, but you get a return on that. So a good example would be something like a nice uh, utility or a railroad, in Buffett's case. Uh, they take quite a lot of cash to run, but uh, and they do grow, but they um, distribute a decent return in exchange for that cash. A gruesome business is one that takes loads of cash to run, and then you don't really make any money by after that because you just take more and more of it. And it feels to me like... This isn't really a Vodafone uh, thing for me. I saw the Boss Hog video too. Actually, I thought it was very good, and he is far more switched on than I am to subtle differences between different telcos uh, and which ones are likely to do better or worse in uh, different sort in that particular uh, space. So, if you're the kind of investor who thinks about, say, an airline or a telco or anything else. OK, look, the space in general is horrible, but there is scope for something there to be worthwhile. Uh, it would be well worth a look here. I struggle to see past the the space in general is horrible uh, in this kind of thing. And I struggle with it a bit on airlines, um, too. I'm open to the idea that there might be something uh, worth doing in this sort of space. I'm less sure that I think it's likely to be Vodafone though i i guess you would want to try if there was a, a meaningful advantage to be got by size and scale and stuff so at the moment it's like owned EE. i think that's the largest um of the networks stevie you on any who is your mobile phone provider by the way you this is the kind of thing that personal finance youtubers talk about quite a lot what kind of a deal are you on
0: i i think i'm with gif Gaff. so if i'm with GIFGAF is that I don't even know who they're, because they're an MVN, MVNO, which is a word I've learned from Boss Hog. I believe there are three customers, so I might be oh. a Vodafone customer coming up. we uh, are a Vodafone customer, and the reason we um, we are a Vodafone customer is because uh, we do a lot of work out in the sticks, and Vodafone has a half-decent signal in the sticks, we were told. The opposite is, uh, is what I've found to be true. Uh, their signal is pretty much the worst. We moved from EE... Uh, last year where we could get a signal throughout Lincolnshire. It was absolutely fantastic. And we've moved to uh Vodafone now where even if I crashed into a Vodafone phone mast I don't think I would get a signal. <laughs>
1: uh GIFGAF I, I went to check that because my wife is on GIFGAF, I'm not. I thought GIFGAF was O2 and I'm sticking with the idea that GIFGAF is O2 after some mm. googling. I'm with Smarty, which uh is three uh three owned so i i got the uh, smarty thing and immediately had a look in my back garden and saw the signal was terrible uh at the house i used to live in and thought this is ridiculous but i am on a like one month rolling thing for about four quid a month uh, which is similar to a kind of gift deal, or at least gift gaff have a, a similar ish deal available i've seen it go backwards and forwards as to who has exactly the better deals on which month and maybe you could save a quid by switching every month but i can't be bothered value my time higher than a quid for uh, switching like that but I then spoke to because I then spoke to three and they said they gave me some nice handy advice uh, which wasn't really any help other than their final bit of advice was yeah you should probably change network if you really can't get any signal um here I thought well good thing I'm only on a one month contract then in that case because I just wriggled out from underneath an EE1 which had been I think about 24 months of of nice kind of recurring revenue for them paying about 20 something quid a month which I no longer even think about doing anything like... I still tether this to my laptop to record this show occasionally.
0: Yeah, I've... Uh, I, I, well, because I'm mostly home or in the office, with uh, you know, and then I've got a work phone for when I'm out and about, I tend to use next to no data whatsoever, so um, the only time I use it is if I, I've positioned the hammock a little bit too far away from the route and I have to switch <laughs> on to 4G, so... Uh, I don't really need an expensive phone deal either. I've just I'm just one of those gift-gaff ten pound goodie bag things, which you know, when you've come from a life of having contracts and not knowing about these things until recently, um, it, it all seems like really, really good, uh, really, really good deals.
1: Yeah, my wife has one of those things. I have a similar thing. Uh, anyway, enough about sexy UK dividend stocks. Uh, Should we talk about something that's kind of the opposite of that, Steve?
0: Yeah, sexy uh, American tech stocks. Mm. Uh, okay, um, so midweek it was uh, Adobe's turn to uh, report their earnings, which, again, doesn't feel like it was like three months since they last did that, but he- here we are. Um, and the the headline was that it was a double beat, essentially. And uh, to be honest with you, I thought the figures looked really good, Steve. Um, so this is Adobe's Q2, and uh, I'll just give you the figures now uh, as I saw them. So revenue was up 10% year-on-year to $4.82 billion. RPO, which is uh, remaining performance obligations, uh, was 15.2 billion. That's again up 10% year on year. Uh, Operating income was up 10% to 2.18 billion. Uh, EPS jumped 17% to Uh, $3.91. And cash flow from Ops was about 2.14 billion. Uh, per segment revenue was still heavy in the Americas, with 60% of revenue from the US and LATAM, uh, 15% from Asia, and 25% from EMEA. So, op margin crept up 22 basis points, Steve, to 45% as well, so really, really strong in, in, in operating. In terms of segment run rates, Creative was up about 7% to 11.6 billion. Document Cloud was up about 17% to 2.5 billion. And buybacks were strong as well, Steve. 2.7 million buys bought back during the quarter, uh, although 1.7 million shares were issued during the quarter of stock based compensation. So only a net reduction of a million shares. Uh, It's not 2.7 million, but it's it's not nothing. Guidance looked pretty good too, as well. To be fair, four point eight three billion to four point eight seven billion next quarter. The market wanted four point eight six billion, so we're within the range somewhere there. EPS, the market wanted three point eight nine three dollars eighty nine. We got three ninety five to four, so quite comfortably above. And for the full year. Adobe expected 19.25 billion to 19.35 billion in revenue the market wanted 19.3 so bang on the midpoint and eps of $15.65 to $15.75 market wanted 15.50 so a pretty handy beat um, Adobe jumped to its 52 week high uh, on Friday, uh, but it did pull back a little afterwards. Uh, but it was still up about 2.5% of the course of play. Um, so it leaves Adobe with about a 230 billion market cap. Uh, it's about 46 on the PE looking backwards and about 29 looking forwards. So it's not a cheap stock, Steve, but this is about where Adobe trades. Uh, do you have any thoughts?
1: It's not a cheap stock. Um, It's sort of never a cheap... Well, I suppose it was cheaper about a month ago, I guess. So uh, maybe wind back my thought that it's never a cheap stock. But it's growing nicely, right? And and on the buyback thing, you're absolutely right. Uh, Offsetting buybacks with stock-based comp is the way to think about buybacks. It is also worth noting that... And yes, it would be nicer, by the way, if we didn't have the stock-based comp thing offsetting it. Adobe... If Adobe were to say to me, kind of in response to that thought... Yeah, but if we didn't do the stock-based comp thing, we wouldn't generate the revenues, therefore we wouldn't have the cash to do the buyback thing at all. And net-net we are ahead because our stock-based comp is lower than our buyback. Um, okay, we're not kind of uh, just winning one way or another. That's I, I wouldn't have much of a kind of case to argue with them, right? I mean, in some of these cases, we look at stock-based comp like it's optional, and it strictly is. But, I mean, we wouldn't say to them something like, well, look, if you didn't have any electricity bills, you would make loads more profits. Your margins would be higher. So stop paying the electricity bills. The thought is they just can't uh, and that kind of thing. You uh, use facilities, premises, staff and so on, and you pay the costs associated with them. And you hope and I guess expect and are judged by whether that means enough money comes back in in the future to do things like buybacks or reinvest or develop new uh, kit. I mean, Adobe is an interesting company to me in that it is it is a tech stock, but tech and innovation are not synonymous, as we know, right? I mean, we've seen Intel. Intel's a tech stock. Intel's not innovated much at all. Adobe is one that continually surprises me by being kind of innovative. I know we're bridging to AI eventually on this subject, but um, when I think about them, I sort of think, okay, they've got pretty good set of products that set of products works fairly well and of course I made a big acquisition kind of fairly recently too that they're I think probably still working their way off and I'm looking for looking to see what that does to earnings per share in the future but they keep innovating quite well as a kind of uh, business and a product and they sort of stay in growth mode like that I think which is is always something interesting to think about for a company that I tend to think if I know it as a tech stock it's probably quite old and Adobe's not new but it does keep doing new things. They seem quite impressive.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, one of the things that I just call back to is stock-based compensation. So I saw this uh, quite a few places, really, where people were coming out and saying, well, look at this, the, the 2.7 and only 1 million off the count, and blah, 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 and you know, they're, still, they're still trying to dilute. And you think, well, what's the alternative, really, in terms of when you get to Adobe size, when you are taking the share count down by spending your you know, your money on buying back more than you issue. What's the alternative? If you stop doing stock-based comp and people say, "Okay, yeah, no more stock-based comp. I'll just take it as a salary," then it's just money from the same pot, isn't it? It's not. It doesn't. It doesn't make a, a, a blind bit of difference. So, I've I've no real understanding why uh, why people are so against stock-based compensation on a company this big, especially when they are still reducing it. Yes, it's a real cost, but it's a real cost that you would be bearing, whether they uh, issued the, the the shares or not, because they have to retain talent. That's how this uh, how this company works in terms of its valuation Steve I was just having a quick look now on roc.ai and it's actually been trading at about 1.9 times the uh, S&P average since 2016 so it's been 1.9 1.8 1.8 1.9 1 which is probably when we missed out on it uh, that was probably covid lows i would imagine 1.8 1.9 and um, and 1.9 at the moment so it, it, we were right when we, sus- we we suspected it was fairly you know within its within its range of is uh, where it normally trades in terms of capex though Steve and things like that it's a really well controlled business. So where you're mm-hmm. looking at free cash flow per share like nearly four Xing since twenty sixteen, CapEx per share is only two and a bit X. So, you know, you can see that gap between what things cost and what they make is is growing quite steadily, which is what you would expect on a tech business. So really, really impressive. Um, we've been taking a look at uh, Adobe Firefly over the uh, last couple of weeks. We really hope that we'd have Paul here for this segment because he's been uh, he's been using it to make his thumbnails. I don't know whether people have realised that they've uh, significantly uh, increased in quality um, since uh, since he started doing that. Because basically, there used to be like a like a baggy curtain with a shocked Paul face in front of it, and he's actually uh, he's actually started to use the uh, the generative. Uh, AI to, uh, to, to create it. But for those who don't know, uh, this is Adobe's AI product. So everybody thought AI was going to come and eat Adobe's dinner. Um, that the, the, uh, the basic, um, generative AI, uh, image services, were just going to get rid of, uh, Adobe and get rid of the need for, um, for any kind of artist or anything like that. But basically I would encourage you to, um, to, to go and find a video on Adobe Firefly, but what it what what uh, what you can do with it is essentially you can drop an image on, you can expand the canvas out a little bit, and then you can use generative AI to fill out parts of uh, of the canvas so there's a really good example of a guy on twitter who's making like a, a steampunk style town and he keeps expanding the canvas out and asking the the generative ai to to fill these areas and then to put palm trees in and to change the sign to a neon sign and make the building taller and you know make the road uh, the light on the road a little bit stronger and it just flies through and it does a wonderful job steve i mean I'm coming out of it thinking like as somebody who has done a bit of graphic design uh, for for you know a, a bit <laughs> if I was looking at this six years ago I would be worried about like you know the fact that anybody can take to uh, Adobe Firefly and, and, and you know make something that would take me hours to create in, in seconds the thing I have realised with it is is that there are just as many people saying it's wonderful as many saying yeah it's good but you still have to tidy it up and I think that's kind of you know where you know the the layman using Adobe Photoshop would would fall foul of uh, uh, you know of um, uh, maybe of the tool itself. So I think there's there's definitely going to be I don't think there's going to be jobs lost over it because I think a lot of people are basically going to change from being graphic designers to people who who learn how to drive software like this. If you know what I mean, so they're going to be people who can take the product drive out the outcomes that they want and then tidy up the image and bring it back and I think that's probably where in my head where I think the graphic design angle goes but uh, it's going to be expensive Steve as well I was looking at it at the moment they're shouldering the cost of it Uh, but uh, they're going to start charging for it basically you're going to get a certain amount of generative AI fills per month out of your subscription but then from that point onwards it's going to be be quite expensive but yeah I've been suitably impressed with it Steve have you seen much on it have you seen much Uh, on Adobe recently? No, but it's got me thinking about the way we
1: set up the business that runs playing footsie, uh, more or less. So if you think between us, you, me, and Paul, uh, we tend to have, in most cases, most of us can do most things, but we tend to have bits of the operation that you and I are better at or more naturally suited to along the way. The exception to that is editing, which I just can't do at the moment. That's always done by either you or very occasionally Paul um i would say what are we on show 125 ish something like that um probably about 120 Three, I mean. 123. okay uh i'm however, whatever number it is out of between 123 and 125 i would say about 120 of them have been edited by you um mm. and the others by uh, paul quickly i tend to contribute elsewhere and stuff like writing show notes and uh coming up with stupid adverts for stuff but um It would be kind of a good thing. It's a thing I kind of consider every so often that if some sort of AI thing could make, Genghis could make your life easier on the editing side and putting together thumbnails side and that kind of thing. So you become a kind of tidying up playing footsie participant rather than a uh, effectively editing uh, playing footsie participant here.
0: That would make life a lot easier. Uh, One of the things we do get with Riverside, which is the the program that we use to record and edit, is we do get an AI um, editor in there. It's not not amazing, uh, but it does shave off hours and hours of editing. Basically, what it does for people at home is... Uh, it takes our two tracks which are recorded completely separately. That's why the quality is pretty good and you don't get that zoom like roboticism every so often um, because the tracks are recorded locally and then they get uploaded to Riverside servers and then the AI editor kind of stitches them together and sorts out all the audio for you and, and things like that. Now sometimes it goes amazingly and sometimes Steve gets a, a text at 11 o'clock at night with about 14 swear words in it and uh, it's just uh, it's not going how, <laughs> how you want. Sometimes um, that's
1: after We've recorded as well, <laughs>
0: yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it does help a lot. So you can already see that you know a lot of this um, work is is already being made by the you know by the software company. So I think it's only a natural progression that we 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 do eventually go further down that um, further down that road. But yeah, it does. I don't use it for thumbnails. I must admit I have used them once or twice uh, for them, but they, they, they just never seem to quite come out with what I'm after. I probably need to go and read about how to use them properly, but they always seem to spit out something they want and not really something you asked for. But I did use it uh, to make the Boss Hogs logo for his, um, for his channel, which is a hedgehog in a suit, um, which it uh, did do quite a good job of that, and I just had to tidy it up because for some reason it thought hedgehogs had six arms and... Uh, yeah, strange things like that. But yeah, once I got to tidying up, it was quite straightforward, uh, and it made a pretty cool, funky little uh, logo: hedgehog in sunglasses with a suit. I think it is off the top of my head. Sir, so. uh, yeah, pretty good, Steve. Um, but I mean, generally, AI. Have you got a little bit on that? Yeah, I've been thinking about
1: AI a little bit lately, both from a kind of investing perspective and from a sort of non-investing perspective. I mean, my students have been spending more time with ChatGPT than than I have, which isn't hard because I've spent pretty much none on it. But they tell me uh, that they think ChatGPT is rubbish. Uh, And I said, well, the point of ChatGPT is at least partly that it learns, right? So it starts off maybe not great, but over time it develops and gets better and better. And they tell me, no, they've tried to teach it and it just cannot learn. Um, the irony of my students telling me they try to teach something that is incapable of learning is not lost on me, but it is lost on them. Uh, but I've been thinking about AI from a kind of stock based thing as well, because I heard a Goldman Sachs podcast the other week, uh, and there was a guy called Sung Cho, who is the co-head of tech investing for fundamental equity at Goldman Sachs, because everyone at Goldman Sachs has a name like that for a, t- a job title. Um, and I guess if you were co-head of tech investing for fundamental equity, you'd be pretty bullish on AI too, right? It would behove you to start talking up AI and tech in general and how wonderful it is because it's your job. Uh, and there's no judgment about that. Don't hate play. I hate game if you come, if it comes to it. But I was wondering, we've looked the massive jump in NVIDIA, uh, shares and basically everything to do with AI. So NVIDIA's up 200% year to date and that's a big market cap thing up 200%, uh, C3 AI, which has a smaller uh, market cap, but does have AI in the name, handily, is up 300%. And Palantir, no one really knows what that does, but it's attached to everything that's kind of popular, is up 155% year to date. So I was starting to wonder, when do we get to the point of thinking this stuff is overpriced? In my head, I wasn't thinking of the word bubble, uh, as in a kind of AI bubble. Uh, but Sung on the podcast was talking about the idea of a bubble forming, and he's quite dismissive of that idea, as you might imagine. Uh, he had two reasons for thinking that AI stocks are not in or anywhere near a bubble. Number one is that they've not been going up for that long, uh, which is a fair observation. Uh, and the other is that there's kind of support from fundamentals for these. So he defines a bubble as something where everyone thinks it's the next big thing, and there's no kind of fundamental support for it. It's not backed up by earnings. Uh, I don't think the reason, the idea that it's just getting started, is a sign that there's uh, they're not in a bubble. They could have gone mad overnight. Uh, GameStop didn't last very long, but that thing was definitely in a bubble. Uh, so I'm going with the idea of that bit by itself doesn't matter. He might be right that share prices have further to go up in Nvidia and so on before they go down because uh well not least because the thing is up or nvidia anyway which he was thinking of as an example is up since i started writing the notes on this so my notes are all out of date i will tell you the new numbers as best i can but i won't have them exactly right so the reason these are not in a bubble according to mr goldman sachs as i'm going to call him now is uh that there is valuation support for these these prices are not outrageous okay NVIDIA then, looking at analyst expectations for what earnings are going to be over the next three years. Next year, the most optimistic and uh, and EPS number from Nasdaq.com was $7.62. Looking out further for three years, it's $12.05 per share. At the time I wrote this, the thing had a, uh, a share price of $390. It's now $420, so another 10%. Not 10% off everything I'm about to tell you. But next year for $7.62, that's a 1.9% earnings yield, um, which, okay, it's going to grow, right? So give it another three years, you get up to a 3.1% earnings yield. Actually now more like a one7 and a 2.8% earnings yield for the next three years. NVIDIA, we talked about these a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I said I thought they kind of looked too expensive at these levels. I think, Steve, you felt the same way, but it has StopTix buyback program, which might be an indication that they don't want to be buying back shares at this price and from my perspective very hard to blame them i don't want to buy their shares at these prices don't see why they should Um, but they had been doing share buybacks when their price was i don't know uh, 50% lower uh, or something like that and this to me speaks of a sign of they're starting to think this is expensive is it a case across the board with the AI thing, though? And i going to go with the answer is no, and that there's a stock in the FTSE 100 that's an AI stock that's really exciting, and it trades at a much, much better price than NVIDIA. So the company is called RELX, as far as I can tell. It's spelled R-E-L-X, and it has a ticker symbol, uh, R-E-L-L-S-E-R-E-L. Steve? I'm sure it's RELX. Is it RELX?
0: Yeah, I think cool. so. Cool.
1: Like Rolex, but not. yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Relux, as it's known uh, in the, to the kind of insiders, uh, does four things, basically. It has a scientific thing, which is a data provider for healthcare advances and scientific advances, that kind of thing. It has a risk arm, which provides data for insurers mainly, but helps companies make risk assessments. It works on exhibitions and it has a legal arm, which is an information and analytics data arm. So it's about information, it's about data, it's about analytics. And all four of those arms are growing. The exhibitions thing struggled during COVID because there weren't any exhibitions to be had in COVID. Historically, it was uh, an academic or a a publishing house that included a lot of academic stuff through an arm called Elsevier which uh, is, no, is pretty much hated, I think, as far as I can tell, in academia, because nearly every publishing house is hated by academia on the count of they're all really expensive to their end users and people don't want that to happen, but they do want to be paid to do it. So the companies that distribute this stuff kind of need to be allowed to make some money back uh, if they're going to put the costs up for it. But uh, they've been using AI in their products for years or so, they say, and have been doing way, way, way before it was cool. Uh, so they're in a, a company that stands to benefit. They also stand to benefit, they think, in their February trading update from AI, generative AI advancements, um, and uh, generally speaking, the growth of that space. Are they as overpriced as NVIDIA? I don't think so. They have a dividend that currently yields around 2%. Uh, they get a 1.5% buyback on top of that if you average the last 10 years out. So there's roughly NVIDIA-like returns once they finish growing for three years, available to you today. Um I guess there's a potential headwind in that you might see pressure from competitors. If AI becomes uh, much more of a thing, couldn't other people do what Relics, as everyone knows it as, does? Hard to say. I mean, they don't see themselves as just uh, a data, uh, an analytics outfit. They see themselves as having their big edges coming from being close to their end markets and working with their uh, and having distinct industry knowledge and that kind of thing. So it's not just a matter of having big data, having better analytics and that sort of thing, and being able to analyze it better. They they think they're based on relationships and knowing their customers fairly well. So I thought this was a kind of interesting FTSE 100 uh, stock here. And it's also because it's, I suppose what I'm looking for is something with exposure to AI and not a massive, massive price tag. PE ratio is around 30. So it's Adobe territory. It's... Um, fairly high especially for a UK stock uh and I say UK stock about 60% of their business gets done in the states so it's UK listed in, in another sense it's not really a UK stock uh but you can buy the thing in pounds uh, if you really want to and deal with the fact that a lot of their earnings come in through dollars what do you think Steve AI a thing for you
0: uh, well look so uh, let's just go back to the beginning right c3 ai is probably the company i have the most disdain for at the moment uh because do you know what the c stands for in c3 ai steve computers it stands for carbon uh Does it? because it was originally a carbon capture uh, company uh that was in 2009 it then changed its name to c3 iot internet of things um that was in 2016. It then changed its name to C3 Energy because it wanted to be some kind of green energy company, and now it's C3 AI. Now, let me know if you spot a trend between those three things uh, that you're that you're seeing there. So, uh, Tom Siebel is—he's uh, a Uh, software founder Uh, he founded Siebel Software which was sold to Oracle for a couple of billion uh, 15 20 years ago something like that Uh, so he has he is the name that's attached to it but he is very very much realizing that if he just follows the trend of the day and keeps changing the the last bit after the c3 bit um, to whatever it needs to be he will continue to get more and more uh, money so that's that's that bit but The next part is that people are getting mixed up between what AI is. So there's three types of AI. There's a weak AI, there's a strong AI, and then there's uh, artificial general intelligence. So a weak AI is uh, basically AI that can only do one thing. So that is, you know, you set it a task, you train it on one specific task, and eventually it learns how to do it uh, better than humans. There's strong AI which can do a multitude of tasks, uh, like maybe running an inventory system or something like that. It can do ins and outs and uh, move stock movements, count stock counts, things like that. That's what you would call as a strong AI because it can do a multitude of tasks for people. Then you have artificial general intelligence, which is essentially what almost sentient level uh, <clears throat> intelligence. We are nowhere near artificial general intelligence the, uh, the 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 one of the leaders in artificial um intelligence is called um uh, Jan lecun uh, he is Facebook's uh, leader in AI but he's been a professor of everywhere to do with AI and uh, the week he said look artificial general intelligence is not even as smart as a dog yet so we're not anywhere near uh, artificial general intelligence and I think that's what people are thinking that where we are at the moment, which it's definitely not. We're essentially at neural networks, teaching neural networks how to do certain tasks and then competing them against each other to make them smarter. And see, that still only makes them weak AI or potentially heading towards strong AI. Uh, All this is useful for is like you know, beating people at Quake or beating the guy who's the best in the world at chess, at chess, or as more recently happened, beating the, uh, the best player in the world at Go uh, beating him at a game of Go this is not like we're not on the cusp of some kind of major breakthrough. Yeah, I feel like this is my, this is my. Uh, what's the fellow called who said that the internet will not, <laughs> the internet will not make a, make a big difference to, uh, to, to, to business. But yeah, that's where I genuinely feel like we are. I don't feel like we're on the cusp of some like massive, uh, artificial general intelligence breakthrough. I think this is, uh, it's a bit of hype at the moment. I, I mean, I posted a. I posted a tweet the uh, the other day, a meme, which is basically the... I don't know whether you've seen it, Steve. It's the meme with the school bus that's going in front of the train. Yes, you sent it to me. Yes, value investors finally getting a break, and it's AI. But that's how I feel at the moment, Steve. I feel like some of this is real. And look, all of the things that are happening in terms of data, more data centers will be needed. Certainly more NVIDIA chips will be needed. All of this will be needed for just a weak AI or, you know, somebody heading towards a strong AI, you will still need to do all of these things and, you know, there will be a load of Capex spent on um, or, or, on data centers, on um on chipsets, on things like that, which means that I'm quite happy where I'm sat with Fat Group because as production has to go up, more clean rooms have to be built. Clean rooms have to be serviced. VAT group will look after that side of the business for me. ASML will look after all of the chip manufacturing for me. So look, you can do whatever you want in far as I'm concerned. You can build as much as you want. I am covered in that regard, but I just think it's all a little bit too much at the moment, Steve. I think we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, and yeah, I just, I don't know. It's not as smart as a dog. So why are we, why are we getting excited?
1: No, I don't, I don't, don't have much of a view on how smart dogs are. But one thing to note, ASML, by the way, is listed in uh, B of A, have their list of, as you would expect, right, uh, any decent investment bank to have their list of AI stocks that are going to be the future. And as far as I can tell, it's a list of every AI stock you can think of without thinking very carefully for the moment. So if I asked you to think of, um, if I said someone like, tell me 20 AI stocks. Uh, or something like that, and we were off the top of our head, you'd say stuff like NVIDIA, correct. Microsoft, correct. C3 AI, correct. Palantir, correct. Uh, ASML, correct. Uh, Ralex, um, you would also be uh, correct uh, with on there. They do have that as a, an AI kind of winner. It didn't look like there was a terrific amount of thought went into that. I mean, in fairness to B of A... Arguably, there is a good case to be made for not overcomplicating this and trying to say, look, here is the kind of idea from the idea from the idea or something and and just stick to pointing out obvious things to people. Uh, But, um, yeah, we've been at the level of decent chess playing robots for quite some time now, right? Uh, That was innovative organizations like IBM that were going to be tearing that up.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think uh, IBM had the uh, Watson robot that also played a few game shows, didn't it, as well, Mm -hmm. and and won a few game shows. Um, But, yeah, how these things work, just to give people a a really rough overview of how they work. So something like ChatGPT, that people think this is actually generating the... The, the the text that you're seeing in front of you because you've asked it a question and it is responding in a human way to that question. That is not entirely not what it's been doing. It's been fed a massive amount of data. Basically, every written word that they could get their hand on in about in 2020s, written code, anything that it can get its hands on has been fed into this machine. And it's basically learned over time what these words mean and how to respond to various questions by the text that it's being fed. So basically, when you uh, when you ask it a question, all it does is go back into this database, search it for the you know the rough answer, and essentially uh, it's going to be uh, this might gets taken down, Steve. So this might gets cancelled, but it's essentially plagiarising the text back out. But Steve, if it can't find the thing that it needs, it just has a little hallucination, and just completely bullshits its way through the answer. Now this has been proven. I don't know whether you saw it, Steve. Uh, I think it was in March that a lawyer. I uh, couldn't be asked to do the work to uh, basically um, somebody was trying to sue an airline that had gone bust and he couldn't be asked to do the background research on it. And he decided to let ChatGPT do it. ChatGPT uh, gave him this huge list of sources of all of these random cases where actually they have been allowed to push forward with this with this suing. And he was like, excellent. I will... Hand this into the judge, and I will get this court. You know, get get this get this case won. Apart from that, none of the cases actually existed, Steve. It just started <laughs> making up like the Lebowski case and mm. the you know the Smith versus Western case and things like that. It just completely made up, and it was really funny to see that when it actually went to the you know the uh, the defendants team, the defendants lawyers had a quick look through it and was like, uh, I don't I don't can't find. Any of these, I mean, one of the cases that came up was with the Vagisie case, which uh, Vagisie versus China Southern Airlines Co. Limited, and there's just no case of that um, uh, existing in the world. So you've got to be very, very careful with what it actually spits out as well. So, how useful is that, T. C.? How useful is it that if you have to do the research after asking the question, uh, what what's the benefit?
1: Yeah, not much. Um, this is a thing that one of my economics colleagues uh, at work had been uh, attempting to have a look at ChatGPT, and he got it to write some essays, and it said it. said he said it's impossible to try, or he so far hadn't managed to get it to be able to do maths correctly. Uh, and I think he means quite complicated maths, at least by my standards anyway. And also, it just makes up references uh, in essays as well. So it doesn't surprise me that it also makes up cases as well. So... Okay, enough of the interesting stuff about AI. We can keep things in suspense no longer. C3.ai is about to change its name to C3.uk fintech because that's where the future action is. Steve, what's been going on in the UK fintech space?
0: Loads, Steve. Loads has been going on. So uh, we'll start with free trade because uh, that's the thing I wrote first. Um, so there's some big news coming out of free trade, Steve. They're going for crowdfunding round number 79. mm uh, and they're still struggling to reach profitability uh no doubt though in the pitch tech it'll just be a few months before they manage it steve and uh, the big headline news coming out of it though was that the valuation is down uh this has been widely reported everywhere It was 650 million, it's now down to just 225 million, so that's a big 60% haircut. Um, And even worse, or even better for the people who took a CLN in the last round, uh, convertible note, they're going to get their shares converted at 20% discount to this price, so it's going to be about 180 million for them, so excellent. Uh, look, I think this is still going to sell pretty quickly because this is a huge drop in price, and the cult still loves this company, Steve. And they're pretty well entrenched, but um, still not profitable valuation with a sixty percent haircut. I wouldn't be surprised now to see you sort of Hargreaves Lansdowne sniffing around, Steve, to take this off their hands at two hundred twenty-five million. This is a, a, a much cheaper way for Hargreaves to get the hand on, hands on what. Well, you know after a bit of due diligence you would hope is slightly better tech thoughts
1: um a couple of thoughts then what well, uh, in let's start with the positive uh thought did you time your exit from here about perfectly i mean not deliberately but
0: um Yeah, I was, yeah. Well, when it got to 650 million, I was just like, this is stupid. I'm not holding it at this kind of level. (laughs) Hmm.
1: So you were in quite early on this one, and you were out sort of fairly recently, not like as in the last week recently, but as in what since we've been doing this show recently, which is kind of uh, broadly recent in the the scheme of things. So well done. Uh, I did have a read about someone who probably isn't going to be buying Free Trade, uh, though. Do you know who that is? JP Morgan, I believe, and Monzo. (laughs) Well done on J.P. Morgan. <laughs> yeah, probably not Monto either, but the list of people not buying free trade is long. It includes you and me and Paul and probably Paul. don't know. He owns a, does he still own a cow? Not sure. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's J.P. Morgan, who they are not expecting talks to progress there uh, for J.P. Morgan to buy free trade. I am not massively surprised uh, about that. No. Uh, Hargreaves would be an interesting place. Uh, bunch to pick them up though i wonder about whether hargreaves uh i sort of wonder whether hargreaves might just beat them out of existence uh to be honest i feel like if there's we are increasingly seeing stuff moving in the direction that hargreaves are are either leading them or going with them i think they're probably leading them led by schwab actually but followed by hargreaves and then followed by various others i won't trample across your other fintech news though because I think it might be partly that. Um, what else is going on in this space, Steve?
0: Well, I was going to say, just before we do shovel on, I, mm. I think it might be that Free Trade acts as a very good sort of like onboarding for grooves. It makes a lot of sense to me. When you think about the way Doddle and AJ Bells work, and essentially mm. you go to Doddle, you get your feet wet, and then once your feet are wet and you, you, you're after a bit more, um, you eventually progress onto AJ Bell and start paying the ridiculous fees. And I think that's kind of what I would imagine... Well, if I was in charge of high groups, that's probably the way I'd want to go. Get 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 free trade. Take all the fees down to uh, a little bit smaller than they are. Maybe make it just a couple of quid a month or something like that and use that as a cheaper tool for onboarding people, getting them used to it. Maybe only give them a few UK and US stocks like uh, AJ Bell has. Sack everyone at the company essentially and just run it as a, as a, uh, as you know, as an onboarding platform. Then eventually shuffle them onto Hargreaves Lansdowne where you can start charging ridiculous fees. It makes a lot of sense to me. But all right, I'll quickly shuffle on. At Revolut, this was uh, quite interesting Steve, and probably a discussion we need to have off air because we've actually got our business bank with them but uh, and we totally missed this news so we're going to put our hands up with this one but uh, the auditors refused to sign off their accounts, Steve, as they were not mm-hmm. able to verify three quarters of Revolut's revenue uh, and this is what actually happened to Wirecard in the end, so it's not a very good sign um, Schroeders after digesting this info have Written down uh, the valuation of their, I put holdings here, uh, Revolut Holdings here. Uh, Revolut Holdings—they've took the valuation down by nearly fifty percent, Steve. So, uh, in order to be BBC balanced about this, Revolut have said that they are simply issues with their internal tooling, and that issue has is now been resolved. Um, Revolut declared that they actually made twenty-six million in profits that year. So. Interesting, uh, but this does come with heavy speculation that the regulator is now set to reject Revolut's application for a banking license, Steve, because of this and a broader set of issues. So, uh, Revolut looks to me to be in a spot of trouble. I would, I think, they were hoping for a big IPO, or something like that, to try and to try and hide these kind of issues, um, which you can obviously hide if you get a couple of billion infusion into the balance sheet. Uh, what do you think, Steve?
1: the name that came to mind when I first read about this of auditor can't find cash story uh, basically was exactly Wirecard so Wirecard's auditors were Ernst & Young and I sort of think if I were a company and and Wirecard was definitely uh, claiming to have money it didn't have I think that's now pretty much pretty much clear Revolut that story kind of goes on right and as you point out Revolut uh, dispute some of this or at least um, not dispute that their auditors can't find it the dispute that isn't it there Uh, but I always felt with the case of Wirecard, if you were clearly hiding uh, or or messing your accounts around, why would you pick someone like Ernst & Young to go and look at that? They're a massive deal. They're a pretty good auditor. They're a fairly reputable bunch. Surely you'd find the dodgiest sodding accountant you possibly could.
0: (laughs) you say that but they were the dodgiest kind of set of auditors Uh, they did a very good job of signing off uh, Wirecard's account for four years despite people pointing out the fact that all of the things weren't there Uh, in one point Ernst & Young um, managed to uh, travel all the way to I think it was Malaysia I'm going to say Malaysia (laughs) to uh, it might be Singapore and got um Got a tour by a celebrity lawyer to local banks who said that they were holding by handing scraps of paper to ernst young uh one billion and another um little local bank just down the road from wirecard hq in singapore uh, it was also said that we were holding 750 million via a scrap of paper and Ernst & Young actually signed that off as being evidence. So Ernst Young were as bad as you could be. It took KPMG to get um, flown in mm. to do uh, a forensic audit for them to actually spot it. And even up until the day when the... Uh, the um, the audit was due to be released, Wirecard thought they were getting away with it somehow. Uh, It turned out that they'd basically overstated their revenue by essentially sending money around a bunch of companies and claiming that as revenue, actually never... Basically making invoices in Microsoft Word and then never claiming the money. Um, The only revenue they were bringing in was uh, massively loss-making. So, um, yeah, a mess of a company. And actually, very good book and very good... um, Netflix uh, film film might be a series uh, on on the Wirecard disaster. I think it's just called Wirecard, but it's uh, it's yes, yeah, it's on the fallout of uh, of Wirecard and I highly recommend it. It's crazy. I mean, we're talking about like. You know, bodyguards leaving cameras on grass, pointing at people's houses, journalists' houses to stop them writing about it, tracking them, breaking into houses. You know, just generally being aggressive. Uh, going to the Financial Times headquarters and using laser microphones to hear what they were saying. Uh, yeah, crazy stories. Um, and obviously, one of the uh, C.O.O. I think he was, uh, Jan Masalek, was uh, a bit of a Russian stooge. He's now defected to Russia. Uh, and he's a yeah, he's a bit of a criminal. Uh, I don't think he'll ever uh, set foot on uh, many European countries ever again. But yeah, uh, interesting fallout, and that's even you are right. Echoes of Wirecard there definitely.
1: In the case of Revolut, it's about three quarters of their 2021 revenue that they quote unquote can't find. Right, it's not uh, you know small overstatement or something here. And, and this is you know quite way back now. We're looking at well delayed uh, reports from 2021, but I think it's like. About three-quarters of it?
0: Yeah, three, uh, that's what they're, they're saying, that there is roughly three-quarters of it, then they just cannot prove that has ever happened.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay. Uh, tell me about something more encouraging. Revolut is, as you say, we have our business bank with them. I've, I, I have I had this ludicrous tribalism with Monzo, because uh, I'm a shareholder there and not with Revolut, for no good reason at all, basically. You just say happened to be fundraising at a time that I was interested in them. But uh, tell me about something more encouraging than Revolut.
0: Okay. Uh, so those two bad trading two and two uh i know we're gonna have to praise them we're not wearing our trading two and two t-shirts today steve but they've gone a bit feature crazy recently there's been a lot of things people have asked for and they've been bringing them out uh and delivering them so they've actually launched interest on account bounces uh some remarkable in terms of percentages but it is something um on gbp you're going to get 1.65 per cent per year uh euro you're going to get 1.25 per cent per year on usd you're going to get 1.9 per cent per year and all of these are going to get paid daily um so i don't know whether you've noticed it steve i've had a bit of cash in my account up until recently and i was getting my two and three p um deposits every so often from uh, every every night at 10 o'clock from trading 212 uh they've also announced that um the share lending uh, which has been going ahead for about a year and a bit now uh, but they're now going to start sharing revenue with us as of the beginning of uh, july uh, it's basically going to be a 50 50 deal with us uh, there's a little bit more info on this one to come soon but it was all in the terms and conditions that got updated recently um essentially whenever your share gets lent out trading 212 receive a commission for that and they're going to split that commission with us so very nice uh, little feature uh, they've announced view-only instruments, Steve, so this allows you to see what's listed on other parts of Trading212. You can also see things like FX pairing rates uh, within um, within the ISA. Now, even though you can't necessarily invest in these things, you can actually see what price they're at and you don't have to keep switching uh, between accounts uh, to to see what's going on. They've Uh, Just released an API, which is quite interesting. So this is um, a programming interface. So we're going to start to see a lot of third-party apps being able to jump into the Trading 2 on 2 platform and m- maybe make some quite interesting things, uh, maybe some interesting portfolio trackers with your data. It'd also be good because I think it's going to, people like stock events are going to be able to tie in and uh, hopefully stop you having to sort of double entry all of your um, all, all of your portfolio together. So that is a, a nice promising feature. And lastly, late last night, Steve, they announced multi-currency accounts are coming as well. So the Invest account uh, will automatically transition to being a multi-currency account. This will allow you to hold and trade multiple currencies. Uh, It means that you'll be able to convert your money into the currency you're using most often and then you'll avoid using FX fees. So when you sell, you'll be able to sell back into dollars if you then want to invest into another dollar company and you'll avoid having to pay an fx fee the other th- good thing about that steve is is if you want to hold all your money in dollars and all you want to do is invest in america you're going to get 1.9 percent on those dollars rather than 1.65 mm. i thought that all that was really positive a lot of stuff that people have been asking for making great strides
1: yeah i thought it's really positive it's not stuff i'd been asking for but it's stuff i think is very welcome so in order uh, then getting uh deposit or getting cash for your cash as it were that you hold in the account is is extremely welcome from my perspective it, it's like getting a 1.65 percent dividend except it's not because it's not paid out of your cash given back to you it's actually cash you get on top of your current uh, stuff that you own so it's sort of better than a dividend if you just consider the um the, the where it comes from and the structure of how that works Uh, I'm pleased with that. I think it's the kind of thing that um, is going to help people stay on that platform. It makes it a more attractive, albeit not maximally attractive, place to store uh, cash. Realistically, in my case, I don't don't think I was ever in a point of thinking, I'm going to keep my money in cash and then dump it into the ISA when the time is right and then go and buy stuff. In my case, I'd more likely stick it in the ISA anyway, uh, except that it's not going to get anything uh on it and then go buy something usually in fairly short order because i can usually find something unintelligent to do with it in the in the stock market with stuff available to me and thinking oh good yeah that that'll do uh maybe i feel like i'm even slightly overpaying for this but i'll go and buy it anyway uh the um developer apps and uh other apps being able to see into it would be good um the one i've wanted them to be connected to for a bit is uh primary bid not because i've actually mm-hmm. bought anything through primary bid but i well one reason i've never bought anything through primary bid is that i don't have an account uh that i can then say okay send it off to wherever um through and apart from i think the deliveroo ipo where they offer to hold them somewhere for you generally speaking they need your uh, gia from aj bell or hargreaves Lansdown or interactive investor or wherever you keep it um and I asked them about trading 212 I also asked them about free trade and they just said no uh, we we do not um, offer those things thanks anyway there's never been anything uh, on primary bid where I thought I must set me up a GIA on Hargreaves so I can buy shares and then have them transferred there it's never been that great of a discount but I am open to the idea that it might be in future and that there might be Uh, shares show up in something that i really like uh they've had diploma doing a raise on there not recently i'm a big fan of that stock yep and entain and uh elseg has been on there uh historically so there's there's you know quote-unquote good companies it's not just kind of crowdfunding punts uh, or something like that that we're uh, interested in so that's the kind of thing i'd love to see trading 212 do i shouldn't have the presence of mind to ask for it that's not their fault that's mine
0: yeah, well, I think that's the thing. Primary bid want to get into IPOs as well. So they want to get into full on book building. So if I if Primary bid can get onto full book building and things yeah. like that, then it might be a very good place to, uh, you know, try and uh, try and get it connected so you can get involved uh, early. Um, whether you're into IPOs or not, we would probably argue that's probably not the best time to be involved in a in a company, but um, especially not on, especially not in the uh, in the London Stock Exchange, where after IPO stocks tend to fall about seventy five percent, which is why nobody wants to list with them. But um, yeah, I think. Uh, primary bid integration that'd be the next nice thing steve i just want pies within pies that's all i want i want to be yeah. able to make a pie within a pie so i can split them all up into nice areas and and then maybe like 10 on for in its own area within a pie so it just reinvests for dividends into for that's what i want steve
1: that was kind of originally mooted as an idea wasn't it pies within pies that's not a thing that's been i mean back when pies were first coming out at the time Pies were not top of my list of things I wanted them to be doing back then. I was much more interested in them uh, adding more securities and uh, supporting fractional shares for everything, which at the time wasn't uh, on there, wasn't a capacity they had back then, especially for say Berkshire or or something. But uh, they came out with pies instead, and the pies feature has been good. I do use it, uh, not much, but I do have a use for it, and I use it actually more in the in the invest account where I've got things that I am unofficially anyway holding for the god children. So that's um, that's something I do use. And Pies within Pies would be kind of nice, and it would help that kind of reinvestment, wouldn't it?
0: Mm, definitely, yeah, definitely.
1: Okay. Uh, anything else, Steve? It's a really interesting run through the UK fintech space. That was it. Yeah, I thought so too. And that is it for our show. Thank you all very much for listening. I've been Steve. He's been Steve. Paul was here. Promise he was. Uh, But we will see you all next week when we're going to talk about some things that are completely different to this. Bye for now.